0: Hello, listeners. Welcome back. This is another Alpha Bonus Bonus, a very belated one, actually. Uh, The last one we did was back in December. And uh, so now we're finally getting around to doing what we always do in the Alpha Bonus Bonus, which is answer your questions and discuss your criticisms of us and the stuff that we do. Um, And there's plenty to get through. So uh, do bear with us. Uh, First of all, it's uh, Sunday, the 13th of March, just so you know, when we are uh and uh yeah i'm with philip and with george as usual hello hi where, where are you you said the when but yeah where, where are you we, we don't need to know we don't need to know where we are we're coming hello? through we're like it's the no, you're moving like moving you're around. like carmen san diego you know, yeah. where are you in the world mm-hmm. surreptitiously
1: <laughs> it's about accountability for our listeners alex tell us where
0: you are. <laughs> anyway um one quick announcement before we get started uh do tell us whether you want your name mentioned when you send in uh an email or message or dm you know uh in reference to to something you've listened to uh so we know whether to mention you or not obviously if you post on the patron we'll mention your patron name because it's you know um viewable to all other listeners one other thing uh reading clubs there's lots of local reading clubs forming uh as a announced previously. You should have a look at the post on Patreon. It's linked in this episode, uh, where there's info on whom to get in touch with if you'd like to form your own reading club. We've also emailed all the people who've come forward to form a local reading club. So you know, whatever, the local leader of the reading club. Uh, And once we've got feedback from everyone, we'll give a shout out to those uh, regions, places, cities who are still looking for people to meet up with locally. Um, So uh, that announcement will be coming shortly. Do uh, let us know how your local reading club is going, but there's plenty which have already substantial groups going um, and have been meeting regularly and a couple of others where people are still looking for other people locally. Um, Anyway, let's get on with it. Um, We're going to start. Firstly, with the last Alpha Bonus Bonus, which was recorded back in December, there was lots of discussion on COVID and lockdowns, which actually seems like a long time away now, Uh, and we don't need to recap it all here. We just wanted to highlight one very good comment from Andrew Mountford, who comments, in considering the impact of pandemic policies, it isn't just necessary to consider abstract principles and quantity of life, but also the profound impact on quality of life. So not just mental well-being, but the devastating impact of social isolation, promotion of fear, people being unable to see family and so on. The point being that we also have to factor in the notion that these restrictions have reduced our lives to a stunted fear-driven and bureaucratized tedium. The left has been unwilling to stand up for or defend a vision of a socialized world in which people draw meaning from spontaneous interaction. And this was all thrown under the bus immediately without any thought to it being a problem because saving lives is the only objective of public policy. I think that's uh, rather well put. so now we're going to move on we're going to go from the newest most recent episode down to the oldest so just to start with uh, episode 246 and 247 why isn't there revolution with vivek chibber this was very popular um lots of people like this there was some discussion on the patron about alex jones and the bible which i couldn't follow i don't did you guys remember what <laughs> whether there was some mention of that um, remember okay. remember what the bible is Alex no, jones well and the bible i wasn't is two, yeah i didn't i have to things.
1: say i wasn't I didn't follow this very closely. Did Vivek place.
0: mention Alex Jones? I, I mean, I was there no. in the room with him, but um, anyway. I don't know okay. Alex
1: Jones was raised the all.
0: Okay. Anyway, um, Eli comments, uh, aren't we still living with the anti-revolutionary legacy of globalization? If you try to secede your revolutionary state from the world market, your economy simply drops dead. You were always already incapable of self-sufficiency when you break with profits, markets, capital, etc. Which to me, at least, somewhat explains why nationalism has become such a popular mode of populist expression, as Phil always says with Brexit. Um, Well, Phil, you're mentioned. Why why don't you comment on that?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't counterpose the idea that globalization is anti-revolutionary. It seems to me that to um, normalize the historical experience of the 20th century, and I don't think we should do that, especially given we're in the 21st by which I mean the model of leftist revolution as a break with the world market accepts the fact that you know revolution was confined essentially to nationalist revolt in the periphery of the world economy. Um, it doesn't seem to me obvious that, say, a revolution in a core advanced country, which is precisely so remote as a prospect now, would mean the economy simply drops dead um, or that it's uh, you know that it's something which is impossible to do, and this forces you into um the defensive reaction of be you know seeking autarky and nationalism so i don't think um i wouldn't cast globalization as um an anti having an anti-revolutionary legacy or that uh, we're condemned to this process of autarky as the only way to kind of break with that logic that like i say that seems to me a legacy of the 20th of the failures of 20th century stalinism more than a legacy of globalization and it's also Mm -hmm. worth bearing in mind i mean globalization in the late 19th century the first kind of round of um, mass expansion in the global economy coincided with the high point of um the sovereign state, both in terms of its spread and also in terms of its um, core strength in the core of the global economy at the time, so the idea that um, you know, kind of uh, political sovereignty and economic globalization are necessarily counterposed, I think that's a legacy of the twentieth century rather than something that's intrinsic to the development of of these forms.
0: I'm I'm not sure. I totally agree, Phil. I because there's a firstly a qualitative difference between globalization now and the first globalization of the late 19th century up until 1913, that there's global capital markets, the, the spread of global finance is such that, you know, the, a, 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 an economy could be crushed pretty quickly. And even a, core, even a core capitalist country, if there were a revolution in France, let's say, which is sort of a secondary power, but nevertheless, part of the capitalist core, um, it would be squeezed so severely and immediately that that does present a problem.
1: No, I think it's um, I think it's a order. It's a different order. It's obviously not to say that a revolution would involve economic disruption, but I think it's an order of magnitude of difference from the idea that um, we're condemned to the fate of you know poor kind of uh, export dependent small peripheral economies of the 20th century, which is where the peasant kind of landless peasant revolution of the 20th century. Um, I don't, you know, it won't be by of necessity. It cannot be the model of the 21st. So I just don't think that it has. I mean,
0: okay, but just to do a counterpoint on this, you know, Russia is being squeezed and that's a fairly large economy. Um, And and that's not, and it's not a revolutionary power at all, right? No, indeed.
1: And look at the difficulty in doing it, right? I mean, um, you know, that will be extra, even for a kind of, even for a relatively small um export dependent economy i mean small by comparison to the major industrialized states russia's towards the bottom of the top 10 but a globalized economy like russia carving it out of the global economy i mean is going to be tremendously difficult for the western powers to do we haven't even seen the beginning of the difficulties that will come with it imagine doing that to the us or britain or france or germany um or china for that matter it's i mean it's just you know it's inconceivable i think that it would be i mean it could be if you know you could attempt it but it would be the cost would be so extraordinarily high that it's something which can't be done easily or simply and the political costs will have their own kind of consequences so Hmm.
2: Uh, Uh, just i have a i I mean i have a an addition or a a finesse or whatever to make, a, to Eli's point, <clears throat> not, not necessarily the anti-revolutionary legacy of globalization, but I think we're still in the kind of post-political legacy of the understanding that globalization can only be managed. You know, it's you might as well, what was it that Blair said? You might as well kind of disagree with the weather. As disagreeing with globalization so there is that kind of that does generate a certain reaction to that idea that you know it's got its world market you can't do anything about it you're just a you're just a fool if you think there's could be any kind of national level uh control of capital controls for example um and so yeah i think that will that will gen we're still in that period of like the, the reaction to that um you know post-political era of the end of history, if you will. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it does, I think there is a link to be made there with the um, kind of contemporary turn towards questions of, you know, what what does it mean to have economic control over a, over a bounded territory? I'm tempted to to reply, but I think we'll end up coming back to this at
0: some later point relatively soon when we discuss sanctions on Russia um, as that whole situation evolves. So we will put a pin in that for now. Um, Moving on to episodes 242 and 243, the double episode with Michael Lind called Bureaucracy Rules Okay. Um, JP comments that Lind lets the Democrats off too easily. It was Clinton and Biden's generation that gutted the final remnants of the New Deal with GOP cooperation. Secondly, the idea of civil rights being a quote-unquote nationalist project doesn't really wash. Martin Luther King Jr. and other key civil rights leaders rooted their arguments in universalism. Uh, Thilo comments, uh, Lind argues for a benign capitalism where workers are not squeezed and that grows through technological advances. This is not possible because leaps in technology have eliminated at least as many quality jobs as has outsourcing to abroad or overseas. In capitalism, technology is a means of squeezing workers. Um, Daniel L. comments uh, that he's also not convinced by the tripartite idea, sort of along similar lines, but uh, specifically making reference to the situation in Australia where the Labour Party, unions, and businesses came together in the 80s and built neoliberalism in Australia. Um, And then a separate comment uh, also from Daniel L., but in reference to the discussion at the very end of the second episode with regard to uh, Michael Lynn's proposals for universities, uh, he says university administrators here in Australia are already creating teaching only positions, and a number of uh, vice chancellors push to have a kind of return to colleges of advanced education on one tier and then universities on top. But it seems just an attempt to cut wages and conditions further. So, uh, relatively skeptical there of um, both of Michael Lynn's proposals that we discussed. Um, And then finally, Dana O'Hara says, uh, thank you, Alex, for raising what, to me at least, has been the obvious question throughout the last few months of episodes, the question of the utility of the bureaucrats and the PMC to capital accumulation, which, of course, has major political implications for the types of political alliances that may or may not be possible. The question of rebuilding strong associational networks is dismissed by George as an incredibly difficult task, perhaps insurmountable. Not to shit on George, he acknowledges the importance of such a project. But I see no other way, continues Dan O'Hara, especially if the alternative is to wait around for a reform-minded elite to show up and take power, and then successfully implement a reformist program against all of the entrenched bourgeois interests that would oppose this.
2: Um, Yeah, go ahead. Some good good comments, and um, just on Dan O'Hara's comment i mean thank you alex um that's you know very nice of him to, to to thank you and you know it's fine to to shit on on george if if it's if it's um justified but i think this this point is on the difficulty of i guess recreating intermediary institutions is a different way to put it this is something that we you know we're going to be discussing when we talk about techno populism um but i think the yeah i mean i think the the basic point across a lot of these, um, you know, very good, very good comments is that we have maybe had, I mean, and this is kind of the same thing when we did the reading club on, on Lint, is that there's a, a good diagnosis, but the, like what you do about it is, is extremely, um, extremely difficult, like it's difficult to, to get a, there's no easy answers. Um, and so anything that you do, it's either has it's massive, political or sociological or, or other, or economic sorts of uh, challenges. So yeah, some, I mean, some good, some good comments though. Um, but yeah, I don't think we're just waiting around for a reform minded elite um, would be my preferred. Uh, no, kind of I mean, I actually, ironically, the most
0: likely way that that comes about is precisely through Michael Lind's proposals or, you know, kind of vision of things where great power conflict, particularly with China um leads to a change an internal change within the elite and
1: becomes yeah and i'd say i mean i'd say perhaps that's the most kind of interesting counterpoint to to arguments is precisely i mean i think the the way in which western foreign policy towards the ukraine crisis is evolving indicates a foreign policy that's captured by the pmc um in terms of you know why the the pmc because it's be, it's entirely the liberal hegemonic politics of the last 30 years that they're trying to perpetuate, humanitarian politics, the politics of the NGOs, the politics of the blob, essentially, um, to perpetuate that from the from peripheral small isolated countries, Libya, Iraq, and Serbia, to you know the case of a nuclear-armed great power. So. I mean that I think would be a you know, a genuine counterpoint to Lynn's hopes that geopolitical rivalry can help foster the kind of political inclusion of the working class that he hopes for. Because, you know, it doesn't seem to be It seems to be quite the opposite right they're going to they by trying to you know seeking their confrontation with Putin they're going to actually squeeze and damage working class interests in terms of the unleashing of inflation in energy and food and what have you so you know there I think he um I suppose what an, an angle that is overlooked in our both in our discussion and in this book is how far the PMC have a stranglehold on um, foreign policy as well, and perhaps that is maybe a place where they where their stranglehold is the tightest. So just a few quick counterpoints to some of the things that were said. I mean, uh,
0: can I can I just let me let me just report, reply to you on that thing quickly, and then and then you take on the other elements. I just I saying it's a PMC's stranglehold. I mean, it's surely that's like the the PMC is a social base for that politics but it's really you know the foreign policy establishment the democrats and so on as well as perhaps the leaders of some ngos and so PMC. on no
1: well, that isn't
2: the pmc that is the that is. is the ruling class
1: no that is so the they they lint,
2: lint call, calls it the managerial overclass anyway so yes,
1: let's be it's good yeah. to be specific he yeah he does have a slightly different optic to capture the group in in question
0: yeah, and it so it's not just perfect. You know, it's not a web designer or something who's a you know well paid well paid proletarian. But we're you know specifically speaking about the managers and the kind of leadership of of institutions, including political
1: institutions. Did you want to come in, George?
2: No, no, I just wanted to.
1: Okay, well, I'm normally I mean,
2: the one who's using terms like PMC or petty bourgeoisie <laughs> uh, in imprecisely. So I I, Look, I, I think I yeah. saw an opportunity.
1: Like the think tanks, you know, the NGO class, the foreign, the kind of the um, top universities with their, um, their, you know, the various academic sinecures that in which um, the parties' kind of foreign policy people rotate between when they're not in office in the US. Um, they are quintessentially PMC, you know, I mean, you're talking about Samantha Power, right? How is she not the quintessential, the NGO crap kind of elevated to the, you know, the White House and the UN Security Council?
0: Oh, yeah, I totally agree. It's just, you know, maybe this is a good, a good case in point where PMC doesn't capture very well, who exactly we're talking about, because people have different things in mind when you say PMC. Right. Um, that aside, anyway. I mean,
1: the you know, our comment. I mean, it, you know, needs to be stressed in response to our listeners. I mean, Lint isn't a Marxist, or I think even kind of a, you know, kind of a leftist, even though many of his political sympathies would be you know, lean left by comparison to um, you know, I suppose, other conservative commentators. So I mean, I think that's important because
0: yeah. it's only it, neoliberalism that's made him seem that way, basically.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and I mean, so the commentators kind of taking him to task for. Um, you know, kind of uh, not being, you know, not uh, kind of having a vision of working class emancipation is to apply a standard by which, you know, he's not, he doesn't set out to, to seek. So certainly, I mean, I think the point about him letting off the Democrats is, is I think that's fair. Um, the idea that the civil rights isn't a nationalist project, but a universalist one, I think that's, um, I mean, calling it nationalist might be, um you know kind of uh, overegging over egging it but i think it's clear that this you know the very notion of civil rights is something that's contained within a nation i mean it's important right that the the civil rights movement wasn't a human rights movement it's only retrospectively that it's squeezed into the narrative of the globalization of human rights the civil rights is something that you seek within the context of a particular political community essentially which is by definition you know is organized around a nation and so and it was asking for the rights, you know, very explicitly. I mean, the Martin Luther King project was explicitly organized around demanding the rights that were embodied in the constitution um, and in the aftermath of the Civil War. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think I don't, you know, I don't accept the idea that it was this kind of bleached out globalist ideology. No, and, and it's
0: important to remember that nationalist, I mean early nationalist movements were in the period of democratic, you know, democratic revolutionary projects right and that's whether it's the french revolution or you know uh, no, garibaldi yeah. in italy or something
2: so yeah indeed um, so I mean, not...
1: civil, yeah, uh, civil rights to, by definition
2: yeah compared to like blm which is so um universal like all the you, as we've discussed previously you see a kind of american frame then being internationalized and then not not you know not making sense i mean that's the that kind of um americanization or like the american idealism being exported i can't remember how you how you put it, alex but that's yeah something audience, like that obviously. but yeah i mean and and that and it, but it's because it's oddly sort
0: of placeless and even and it's worst, somehow yeah. historyless right yeah. um, and that's what gives it sort of its flattening homogenous nature um yeah, which is different not... from a, from like the very rooted uh, yeah, but right it, I mean, but struggle, specifically, it's
1: yeah, it's, I suppose, rooted not in the sense of some kind of um, organic connection to mm. a particular community, but rooted in the sense that it's tied into a project of influencing existing political institutions at a national level, rather than yeah. um, some, you know, kind of disconnected moral crusade, yeah. which is the way and, in and which it, the moral it, universalism of or globalism of human rights has been cast.
0: Yeah, and it's a reckoning with a particular national history too. You know, exactly. in terms of civil yes. rights, not yes, yeah. General. So I mean,
1: I don't, I can't. You know, I think. I mean, I don't, I can't quarrel with lint. Um, nationalist might be putting. You know, I might not choose that word to describe it, but um, I don't. You know, I think I understand his meaning with respect to um, to what uh, the civil rights movement involved. For Thilo's point about the benign capitalism, workers aren't squeezed. I'm not sure that's quite fair. Um, I think, in lint's view, like his, I don't think he has uh, hes necessarily sentimental or um, misty-eyed about capitalism, but he does think there are ways to offset its costs, at least at the national level, and that um, there are—you know—there are benefits that. T- I think his point is that there are all the gains that have come, have been at the expense essentially of technological industrial expansion and productivity to a large extent. And so those gains haven't been um, that ordinary kind of working class people haven't enjoyed the benefits of those gains over um, over the last 30 years. And that's a political choice rather than something that's intrinsic. Um, but, so,
0: but, you know, but, but there's an important point, which is that growth has, you know, tended lower. And so the proceeds yeah, of growth aren't there to be distributed I think, I mean, in the way they were before. So and that's where I yeah, think that's, that's where the, I think he's too optimistic.
1: That's not Thilo's point. No. I mean he might I mean, sure. I mean, but again, Lino, you know, so when Thilo says or Thilo uh, when they say capitalism technology is a means of squeezing workers, I mean, you know, that's simply that's a, a disagreement with the overall kind of thrust of Lynn's theory. I think the point about the tripartite idea Um, that Daniel L. takes takes issue with is interesting given the fact that in Australia you had this kind of corporatist model which led to the, you know, led to neoliberalism. Um, So that is, you know, I think that is an interesting idea, but I think I suppose, you know, I'm kind of uh, speaking for Lint here, which I can only guess, I suppose he would think that political intermediation is doesn't offer guarantees necessarily for the kind of political model that he wants except for the fact that it would break the power of the pmc which is his concern in that book by definition it elevates um, the corporate corporatist model would elevate different groups and force them into cutting deals with each other essentially so by definition it would require restraining the pmc so i don't think it's I don't think he was making a guarantee of outcomes, but only that um a better case for working class interests will by definition kind of foster the um greater political inclusion of the working class, which is what he wants. Um and then finally for the point about the um this question of the relationship of the PMC to capital accumulation, what have you, and strong associational networks. Um I I mean George Iskes can answer that himself if he as hasn't already but um i don't you know i think the point is rather that stronger so you know there's nothing apart from invoking the need for them and maybe getting on with the business of attending your local pta meeting or going to church if you're religious or i don't know joining your union if you're so minded or you know those kinds of um it doesn't really amount to anything apart from encouraging people to be more social so it's a call when it in itself falls flat i think it you know it doesn't kind of um offer anything meaningful political it's just a kind of call to you know go out and um go out be fruitful and multiply is all you well, can really say
2: yeah <clears throat> stop bowling alone and go in and rebuild the top networks to give <laughs> meaning to life and and yeah create a rich a rich and fruitful politics D- but yeah he I mean... was a keen bowler so you know yeah, bulls though, so not not <laughs> in, <early. yeah. laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think we we will discuss this more in later episodes. But I mean, this is the like, if not if not going backwards to these, like to rebuild the unions and churches and, and old parties, then what what's the alternative? I mean, that's the question. But Anyway, yeah.
0: just 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 finally, and, and to kind of repay the compliment to Dan O'Hara, I think he's very right to highlight this issue of. Um, the question of the utility of the bureaucra you can't say you can't say
2: you can't say that he's right to agree with a point no 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 no
0: but he, it's because he's high he's chosen to highlight that and I think that's important um and I think that I don't have a ready answer for that and I but I do think we should come back uh, to that in a dedicated episode on the bureaucratization of capitalism and how that fits in with capital accumulation because it's not altogether clear. Um, in fact it seems to run contrary to it rather than be in aid of it so i think that there's definitely something to be unpicked there beyond kind of just the references which people make to uh, um, market stalinism which is what um, which is what
1: uh, um... i can't really see the tension myself but i'm happy i think coming back to it would be useful to talk yeah. about it more yeah. yeah
0: okay very good let's uh, let's try to do that uh, in the coming months mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, moving on to number two, four, one. There was a three articles called "Peace and Social War in North America." Now, there's plenty on Canadian truckers. We'll come to that in a second. Just to highlight uh, a point made both by Eli and Nathan Beasley, who take issue with Phil's claim that left anti-imperialists are closet warmongers. mongers. Uh, one of the two points out, for example, that you can't read off um, from you can't read off a, a sort of um, closet warmongering is from Bernie's stance on Kosovo, for example. So I think what they're pointing at is, um, you know, who are, like, what left actual, not just leftists, but specifically left anti-imperialists are pro-war.
1: Well, the point was not so much that they're covert warmongers, but that the fact that the left has attached itself to human rights um, and the fact that they're so, that they've, um frame their criticisms of latter-day imperialism as in terms of human rights means that they're always forced they're always trapped in um the latest whenever the latest crusade for human rights is launched and so i think bernie's you know bernie's stance in kosovo is extraordinarily telling um and indeed you know like but, very but bernie important.
0: isn't an anti-imperialist i think that would be the point i mean you wouldn't describe him as an anti-imperialist and i so I think um, that's more the issue. You know, the anti-imperialist in question might be, I don't know, you know, uh, well, various kind we're of talking cl- about legacy fringe, communist parties. Sure. Or, so if we're
1: talking about kind of the fringe, you know, fringe sects of the radical left, I still think, I mean, um, you know, many of them kind of had, con- you know, uh, many of them, some of them did support Kosovo. Um, Some of them, quite the largest anti-war movement in British history, stopped the War, was supportive of going back to the UN back in 2003 to get UN endorsement for the US military invasion. That's kind of where they politically settled. So it was contained within the idea that it required UN legitimation rather than being against the war in itself. So I think the contortions of anti-imperialism broadly conceived um, are part of how um, war has been continuously legitimated. And this is I mean, this is kind of the argument that I try to unpick in Cosmopolitan Dystopia, which is the fact that the arguments for war, war are always cast in the terms of a humanitarian emergency is precisely what has made them so difficult to politically challenge. Um, so the anti-imperial, you know, anti-imperialism, I think, is um, is is filled with holes. Um, and that is partly why. Um, war has been so recurrent, is precisely because the criticism of it has been so uneven yeah, and so easily I think, trapped.
2: I think you can be cruder than that. Basically, you talk about sovereignty, or you're a warmonger, because the, you know all roads through human rights lead to humanitarian intervention and like going past the state's kind of territory and its sovereignty and borders, and just yeah, engaging in. In wars overseas um,
1: yeah i agree i agree i was finessing it too much human rights is the it is the you know the commitment it is the thing which is locked in permanent war i think human that has rights to be...
2: equals law equals war sovereignty yes. equals no war yes there mm, you go not
0: sure <laughs> yeah i'm not sure about the latter section of the, of the formulation but anyway um Plenty on the Canadian trucker. So I'm going to read several of these comments which pulled out uh, and then we can respond to them or guys, if you want to jump in, please do. Uh, Van Penner says the coherence or lack thereof of the Canadian trucker protests can be clearly seen in some of Jordan Peterson's recent videos decrying the Canadian COVID response. Being the ideological figurehead of that movement, Peterson only offers the same kind of neoliberal PMC whining as uh, seen, uh, seen on the liberal left. Um, even many of the truckers' movement tactics mirror, mirror those of woke political movements, with truckers contacting the workplaces of counter-protesters in efforts to get them fired in my city, as an example. It seems to me that the trucker protest is more of a petty bourgeois wine-fest LARP, like the Capitol Hill ride in Washington, than a worker-led collective action. Uh, in one quite popular comment by Carson H., Uh, He takes George and Phil to task for being over-optimistic about, uh, quote-unquote, conservative working-class revolt. It's fake in the U.S. and it's fake in Canada. The position articulated in the New York Times piece that we discussed in the article is indeed far more critical and coherent than what most most right-wing thinkers are saying these days. But where is the social and political basis for a project like this? I just can't buy into the idea of a functional alliance between socially conservative workers and those sections of American capital, which are opposed to Silicon Valley, high finance, globalists, and so on. The Republican Party, for example, can't reconcile its interests or those of its backers with the interests of labor, regardless of how anyone feels about wokeness. It seems to me that both the truckers, i.e. a subset of truckers plus various other non-trucker elements, and the Trump restorationists are involved with something as politically vacuous as anything liberals have been up to lately. It's fair to criticize left populism for attempting to, quote unquote, do mass politics without the masses and so on. But how is this stuff, the trucker stuff, any different? So Eli, I would, e- Eli adds I would, to this, just, just to add to um, yeah. that these right populist movements follow the class coalition model of workers aligned with the national bourgeoisie that you see in national liberation movement.
1: Yeah, and then... Um... JP says, I think it's pretty telling, Rupert Murdoch, conservative media, willing to give millions of dollars of free publicity while completely ignoring the demands of workers who have struck for better working conditions and wages. This includes a strike by the Teamsters in Seattle that has gone on for weeks and involves more workers than these Canadian protests. All of that, I mean, you know, is, I don't think the idea that we were suggesting that Canadian truckers should be counterposed um, to kind of uh, strikes that might be happening in significant strikes at a regional level anywhere in the world, that was, I mean, I don't think any of us was saying that. The difference, though, I suppose, with the Teamsters in Seattle and what was happening was that here you had a protest that immobilized a national capital. So if truckers or any other kind of working class um, group had immobilized, say, Washington, D.C., and paralyzed the functioning of the Capitol and sent um, Biden into hiding and into kind of spas- spas- spastically lashing out on social media, denouncing them as transphobes and bigots, you know, it's an order of magnitude different. The fact that it um, was managed to bring to a halt ordinary life and business and so was so deeply threatening to um the ruling, you know, ruling political elite in Canada in a way that the, you know, uh, Teamsters in Seattle clearly isn't. So I think this is what we made it worthy of attention. Um, The fact that a lot of it is, you know, kind of incoherent um, and that it's, uh, you know, that it might involve plenty of um, plenty of the same kinds of tactics that mirror those of their opponents. I don't think that's so surprising and is certainly, um, you know, certainly not something to be endorsed. But nonetheless, again, it seems to me more significant in as much as that it brought to, you know, it brought the capital city to a halt. Um, It made the prime minister kind of flee in terror for no kind of specific reason. And I think its political direction was very clear is because the truckers also waved, And this was a point made by in a different context in um, British reporting on the event. But they took the Canadian flag which has thus far only been the flag of, um, you know, multiracial, the multiracial kind of immigrant utopia, woke utopia of Justin Trudeau and liberal Canada. And they took it and made it the cause for a different cause um, and claimed it for an idea of freedom, however limited and incoherent that might be. And I think that is the thing that was so enormously shocking and threatening to Canada's elite, so, so let, me,
2: let me continue on. Reading yeah, these. I'll and we co- can come back to this. You read all um, of them and then I, yeah. I have my my response. Uh,
0: Mark Larrave comments that uh, he's in Canada. And while the truckers are not Nazis or fascists, they are not a left working class phenomenon. It's mixed and lots of libertarianism in there. Aponte keeps it very short and sweet because he cannot claim the movement is left wing. There's no class consciousness there. Um, Atticus Canem-Kyle says, I think your hostility towards the PMC and neoliberal technocracy clouds your judgment about the class nature of right populism and the trucker protest in particular. One of its primary organizers was actually a trucker, and he was an avowed white supremacist. The rest were classical economic liberals, evangelical Christians, and Western Canadian secessionists connected to the oil and gas industries. Um, he points us to other things which are more worthy uh, of our attention: the Kellogg strike, the current Amazon organizing drive, the vote on Starbucks uni- unionization, Striketober, etc. These are actual working people, not petty bourgeois populists.
1: I have to take. I mean, I yeah. you know, I let I let, let, to...
2: let George go because uh, right. let let George speak the voice of the the voice of the voiceless um yeah i mean i i think to to take these as a as a group i i guess one thing that i think that the you know it's a few few months down the line now but reflecting on the on the truckers um and the response to them two things came out one is that this the, the point around peterson being the ideological figurehead this kind of does this politically ideologically disqualify the movement I don't think so because there's no like who on the left would have been the the kind of the acceptable figurehead of of this like of this movement that it was politically independent from any um, of the kind of established you know <clears throat> kind of left movements or parties. So I think the question of who the ideological figurehead is of a movement is less. I I think it's less important than I used to think it was. Second point. This, about the class composition, I, again, this is something which I think is, I will, in future, the next time something like this happens, try to pay relatively less attention to. And instead of this kind of idea that you can sociologically disqualify by pointing to this person or that person as a, a petty bourgeois owner-operator or as you know having this or that interest, I think instead, the, the, the thing to examine is what is the political composition? of this movement? What are the demands? And I don't think I agree with you, Phil. I don't think that they were limited or incoherent. I think it was a clear demand for for freedom. Um, And that's something which I would support. And the other thing to to look at, in addition to the political composition, is what's the response to the class interests that are threatened? I feel like the, yeah, these hated PMCs that we're always banging on about. But there is a group in society that is quite organized and coherent and has a good understanding of how to act politically and, it, and what its interests are, more or less. Um, and so anything which the PMC hate is good this is my this no, is my I'm I, I, well, look, I i, I, so I strongly I disagree to, let, wait, me, let, let me let me let me come <laughs> back on
1: this no no, no but you're you're the you're you're leading this so let me come back because i want to just i want to add look i've triggered i've saying. triggered
2: the pmc so i must be I wanna,
1: correct <laughs> i want to add so i mean when i say you know to qualify what i said before and i agree with george you know there clearly was a kind of an overarching demand which was against vax passports right and that was clear what i'm saying is this idea that you know, you can point to the fact that they're, you know, that the signs don't all say the same thing. The banners don't all say the same things. And if you interview people on the street, kind of that are participating in a particular protest, that they don't all have the same kind of line doesn't mean that it is um, simply kind of a rabble or a morass. And so I'm saying that when you have, you know, eruptions like this, they will be incoherence, you know, so I'm not denying the fact of the, there was an overarching political message, but I'm, you know in support of what was george was saying the fact that it's incoherent in some respects doesn't disqualify it nor does it you know if there's evangelical christians and western canadian secessionists involved i don't see that that disqualifies the disqualifies them either or this idea that they're not kind of um left wing working class phenomenon i mean that was very obvious and i think you know to the extent that as george says again you know insofar as they're politically independent both of the of the political establishment in canada On both the right and the left. Um, That seems to me to be to its credit more than to its, um, you know, to its detriment. And I think the question of conservative, let me just finish on these particular comments we've talked about. So on this idea that a conservative working class revolt, that George and Phil are being over optimistic, this was Carson's comment. um, It's not a question of optimism. Like we were, what we were discussing was rather that there is an attempt to carve out this political space. And it is political territory, which precisely because the left isn't there. And so if the left kind of expects a, um, you know, this kind of sainted um, working class to emerge, which doesn't have any connection to, you know, doesn't own anything at all, um, doesn't have any kind of um, and is kind of utterly benighted and has no only has opinions that they agree with in advance. You know, they'll be waiting forever. I agree with Carson's comment that it will be very difficult for the Republicans to forge some kind of stable coalition. But it might be, you know, they might be able to jerry-rig it together to manage to squeeze Trump back into the White House in the next presidential election. I'm not saying it's a stable force for electoral hegemony across this century, only that they're trying to do it. And the reason that they can try to do it is precisely because that's wide open political territory abandoned by the left. And the idea that work, you know, that the working class will show up reflecting our own opinions back to us is, um, you know, then that's never going to happen. So I think it's our re- it's our listeners in this with in response to this point where they're being a bit over optimistic.
0: So, I mean, I agree with that last point about expecting something to be emerged, fully formed um, and worthy of support. I think that's probably rather difficult in today's confused times. So in that regard, that's why I think the truckers thing might have been worth engaging with. But I'm not saying necessarily just blanketly supporting. Um, I'm not sure about the how much political independence it has precisely because it had a lot of kind of right wing support and, you know, from the media as well. So I, I, I just well, because it just because it just parties. because
1: independence of the not independent okay. and again, you know, independent. OK, of OK, okay. Independent but let, of society. Let, 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 let,
0: let's not get. where are they going
1: to come from? Like they're going to come off an island, you know, where they have no connection with anybody Um, independent of existing political parties. That was the sense of political independence and existing institutions of civil society. Okay. It
0: wasn't Um, something which was, all
1: right. All right. Okay. okay, okay, okay.
0: Okay. So the, the point about George, your point, we can't judge a movement on its sociological composition. Okay. I agree. But that standard needs to be applied equally across the board. So to say, oh, this movement here um, of whatever, some like liberal demands or whatever, it's all middle class also is not a point. Is not a valid point then according to that rule. Right. So I think we have to be even handed with that. I, as it happens, I agree with you. We should look at the political demands. First of all, rather than to, Look purely at the class composition. Of course, class composition is important, but again, these things will be confused. There might be middle. There'll always, I think, in in today's situation, you know, be middle class elements, as there was with the Canadian protesters, or with many, you know, quote unquote left wing ones, which we know are dominated by uh, the PMC, but which often have, you know, working class elements in it as well. So, the fact that, uh, in sociological terms, it's a confused picture very often, both on supposedly the quote-unquote left and the quote-unquote right um, shouldn't uh, be the final word on the matter right we should look at it politically. Yeah. so I agree I, mean, with, I, I, I agree with you but I'm going to hold you to yeah. the same standard then in future um, okay well you don't
2: have to, you don't I, have will, to, hold me to I will I will uh, when you go <laughs> oh it's just a bunch
0: of PMC like my mate then you know like you say well so All what right. what are their political demands fine, fine. Um, but their political demands here I think again Yes, freedom, but I mean, you know, how many reactionary movements have wielded the the, the name of freedom as well? That that is oh, not no, no, argument. no. I'm sorry, yeah, you can't. Yeah,
2: yeah look, fr- that...
0: freedom, freedom is not self evident. It's not, you know. Yes, we're all in favor of freedom, but most poli- most politics since the French Revolution, like, was in the name of freedom, right? Neoliberalism was in the name of freedom. Many neoconservatives also, in term- w- wield the, the 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 you know the sword of freedom. So that's not. Self-evident. I think we have to look concretely. Okay, what are they actually proposing? As it happens, I'm I'm on board with their political demands against the vaccine passports. I'm good with that. But again, I, the, the, my conclusion of that it is it's in, it's kind of incoherent in terms of its broader ideology, but it's coherent around this specific demand and that was something that is worth engaging with precisely because as Phyllis highlighted there's this void where the left should be and should be seeking to lead it the okay, fact that but... there are leaders which aren't which are right wing is uh, i think to a certain extent speaks to a failure of the left rather than um rather than it being necessarily the right being strong
1: okay but alex the issue is i think that the debate about freedom is the debate that you want to be having Rather than so the fact that, you know, other kind of the people that you disagree with happen to have used the word freedom for their own projects. um, That's neither here nor there. The fact that, um, you know, that we're that the left in particular is um, so hostile to the idea of freedom and that the minute that they hear freedom, they think the fact that it's, um, you know, kind of a right wing talking point, that it's uh, suspect. OK, but, but I don't of,
0: judge. I don't judge political events by what the left or what, you know, the PMC is saying why, and do the opposite. I'm, I don't I, care about that.
1: No, no, I understand. But I'm saying that, you know, kind of the fact, you know, that whatever their vision of their vision of freedom might well be inadequate, but better to be discussing what the politics of freedom looks like than to be kind of, you um, uh, not engaging yeah, in yeah.
2: The- I, I, agree not that. I agree with that i agree with yeah. that i think i think the correct correct response is like improv it's like you're asking for freedom yes and you know if somebody's talking about freedom mm. you, you yeah say, yeah I, I agree with that yes i and. think
0: that's a good i think that's a fair formulation even though you said improv <laughs> and i thought oh god this is terrible but yeah no fair enough Um, We're going to continue on actually fairly similar terrain because we're going to move on to episode 240, uh, the first iteration and maybe the last, I don't know, uh, (laughs) of populist interventions, uh, which was uh, George's interview with Malcolm Chayuni. Uh, This was a very contentious episode. Um, I'm going to go through these. A lot of them tread similar ground. So I think we'll try to discuss them at the end. Uh, via email, one listener asks, isn't the Odebiro Party just uh, our stupid poll uh, in reference to the uh, Reddit, the subreddit? Uh, isn't, just, isn't it just stupid poll griping about SJWs? Uh, one Reddit-like characteristic I noticed with Mr. Chayuni is that he seemed to be quite impressed with the biting cleverness of all the ways he characterized his opponents, i.e. the transferiate class and the uselessness of their sinecure jobs. No doubt it is cathartic to compare the left woke Twitter SJWs that every sane person dreads to organize crime. I'm not sure I follow there, but um, I too found critiques
1: of- He means he was talking about the fact Chayune kind of talked about it as a shakedown. Right. They come into municipal kind of government and they shake it down, basically. Yeah. Infection money.
0: Um, I too found critiques of wokeness and SAW somewhat illuminating, but back around 2014-15. And of course, he made sure to drop the word gammons a few times just to put you native English speakers on notice that he was familiar with those sorts of online political performativities playing out in English-speaking countries. His reluctance to name concrete political positions, beyond getting rid of bullshit social media jobs and local government, gave me the impression that he was fueled by the non-revelation that a lot of liberals and leftists aren't animated by the ideals they are notionally animated by. The kind of like, yeah, big deal, great discovery, leftists and liberals are mostly shit, so what? um frederick ecklund says uh, i always feel that malcolm's personal resentment gets confused with this political judgment i do understand his annoyance with meaningless municipal bureaucrats but i don't think his model of politics is credible pmc hatred that is hatred of the pmc reflects poorly on himself and makes the project seem incredibly superficial if you want a credible political project you should start with a credible subject Oederberg uh, heavy focus on Marcus and Malcolm in combination with this ambivalent attitude towards his own character doesn't exclude that. So uh, Frederick Axe poses a question to us. If I understand him correctly, he believes that a meaningful and relevant chunk of material politics hides behind the term culture wars. Do you agree? Any evidence to back this up? Uh, do we want to maybe just discuss this actually quickly? Because it, it, it relates to Malcolm's claim that what is mm. called, quote unquote, culture war is actually just class war.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I think it's it, it is the case that culture wars are, you know, to be to be very crude again, to be as vulgar as possible. Yeah, they're, they're battle over material resources. Um, and I yeah, I think I, I think there is evidence to back this
0: up. That doesn't make it class politics, though. Battle over material resources can take many forms. It can be between different ethnic groups, for example. So that's not doesn't answer the question fully
2: mm, it does answer the question because a meaningful chunk of material politics hides behind this term not class politics and i guess then the the next but, but why should it, i don't care so, about
0: material politics it just you know well, the fact that it involves money i don't think that's you, particularly meaningful fight over you resources. may not care
2: about you may not care about material politics but material politics cares about you no I but mean, it, but it's if, not class politics i mean i'm, I'm a marxist well, i'm not a i don't know like so. what i was going to say is the question then becomes what are the collective actors the classes or fractions of classes that whose interests are advanced by um, taking certain positions in culture wars and I would say this is why the, the concept of the PMC or the new petty bourgeoisie or the managerial labor class is useful because it does connect these things like the character and the content of a lot of politics to a group who benefit from it so I would say I would say, yes, I would say that's, that would be my interpretation that there is material politics going on here and it is a relatively small fraction of society that is, that is particularly doing well. I mean, there are, there are wider contexts and questions of, isn't the, isn't the point about the PMC precisely that they aren't doing
0: well. I mean, that is the, not the managerial overclass, but really, you know, various professionals and whatever, that they're downwardly mobile. I mean, that's been the, that's been the argument about yeah they're still doing that right populism. they're very they're very downward no but but no but that's the th- no that you know what direction you're traveling in is always more important politically than where you actually started from
1: yeah but that so, is but the fact that they're squeezed is why these you know why they're so pathological politically i mean the two are connected quite obviously
0: yes i know i i, I agree with that and that there is a problem there but that doesn't mean that huge you know swathes of the pmc um aren't effectively sh- uh, affected by the same forces that affect the working class no but later. because
1: they're pmc they express that in a different way right they express it in terms yeah but, of uh, but I,
0: I don't think that's deterministic i don't think that's you know um like a, ne- a necessary think... expression
1: no i think it is necessary i think it's um you know kind of that is the way in which they will um, their downward mobility is expressed in virtue hoarding in Catherine Liu's terms, right. To, to make up for the fact that because,
0: stati- have... yeah, because of stat. Yeah. Because the, the reference, yeah. Status, yeah. They cling right? to status
1: precisely in inverse proportion to their, um, shrinking kind of material, um, circumstances. Okay. But that doesn't and answer necessarily
2: the, cu- the culture war point because I think yes, there no, so it does. Would, it does. Would, so my, well, my, so the, an argument that I've made before, which you may or may not have noticed, um, when I made it was the idea that the particular the lower particularly the lower half of the of the professional managerial class, like culture wars are good ways to differentiate themselves politically and in status terms from the working class into which they are, they're at danger of falling. So there is a kind of, I think there is a material and class politics. No, which I comes it, in from there. them
0: from that side. But that's a, but the cult the the point suggests that to taking an opposite line to that necessarily means that you are siding with a proletariat and that i don't think is is true
1: no but i don't think that's what frederick Eklund is saying so look i mean frederick Eklund has some criticisms he seems to be somebody who's based in sweden or scandinavia he seems more familiar with the wider politics of the euro party um, and he has some criticisms you know that it's too kind of um that it's too personalized around uh, marcus and malcolm and he has some other criticisms of it and i can't you know i can't speak to those Um, because I don't, I simply don't know enough about Swedish politics. Um, But it seems to me his, um, I mean, again, the core, I mean, I don't think uh, Malcolm hid anything in terms of what he was saying. It seems, or at least it seems very clear, the political project is building up a cadre of working class, of kind of uh, developing working class political experience and developing a cadre at the municipal level. Um, by tangling with people who essentially monopolize that level of local government up until now. and that is and that part of that project is chiseling away at the municipal basis of the social democratic party at the national level. That was what I understood to be his political project. And to that extent, that seems to me to be, you know, it's not kind of, uh, it's not global revolution tomorrow. Certainly not, right? It's not about solidarity with kind of obscure and um, kind of obscure and peripheral groups in conflicts in kind of remote places or anything like that. So that seems, you know, like the limits to that project for sure. But none of the comments that we've had from listeners seem to, they seem to take issue with lots of other things about what Malcolm said and about Ouroboro in general, but they don't actually take issue with that core claim.
0: Okay, well, let's move on to some of these. uh, And then we can come back to it. So Eli comments, isn't this just neoliberalism, i.e. what what they're proposing? That is, if you try to smash various intermediating bureaucracies and professional class organizations, don't you just end up with a market intermediating instead? Um, Several people call Malcolm uh, also a smug podcaster, uh, who claims to have material politics, but the only policy he can think of is getting Islamists out of schools. Mark Larive comments that this transfer thing is a very narrow basis on which to oppose capitalism. More nurses, fine, but that's a budget debate. How is this not another form of liberalism? Uh, Olgert says uh, that Malcolm fails to outline that there are massive divisions within the middle class. And that's what's driving a lot of the conflict that we see that he describes. It's not PMC versus the workers, but more like PMC versus the traditional middle class, a point that I very much agree with. Uh, Reg Schmoo says, this guy's class politics are very mixed up. What, the workers and blessed job creators on one side versus the social media account monitors and those on the dole? Um, Dan O'Hara comments, it seems to me pretty clear that the transfer exists as a result of the interests of capitalists to accumulate as, as much as the state. It is a capitalist state after all. To skirt this question is to leave a pretty serious gap in the analysis. The notion that they are merely parasitical lets them and the capitalists off the hook way too easily. Mikolas says, the leading names of the formation seem like disgruntled members of the same transphariate class that they set themselves up against so harshly. And a lot of this looks for like vying for position. Odebro's actual policies seem to me uh, incredibly milquetoast, just a mild localist redistribution. Poca Volia says, uh, this person just seems really upset that he didn't get his rightful place in the PMC, thoughtful middle class. Uh, John O'Riordan says, doesn't George work for none He took it on the chin like a champ. Not everyone can. Uh, and uh, Nesnaika says, as a member of the transferiate class myself, I hope that comrades in the comments will find enough courage to recognize our common class position and become a class for itself. Uh, that will fight for the abolition uh, for fight for our abolition into a classless society. We also suffer under capitalism.
2: yeah, so I have um I, I guess I have to take some responsibility for uh, this was my suggestion of an episode and it got um, yeah, I mean, as you you know you read out most of the comments there are are, Uh, not super positive um but i do think the you know just to maybe to a certain extent to repeat what some of the things that phil was saying that you know this it it is a it is a political intervention based on the idea that there is a group in society that has a certain you know class material interest and you the, the the gambit is that you can organize against this class in the swedish context and get people behind this banner and i guess the proof will be in the pudding or not um and you know it's it is a material material it is a political project so you know the the if they get votes if they get power then then you know then then it's a success i think our, our listeners were also unfair to um to podcasters like a smug podcaster. I mean, that's, that's a bit below the belt. I mean, c- come on guys, like criticizes politics, but not his, not his profession. And on that <laughs> note, on that note, do I work for an NGO? I, I do indeed. So I don't, I mean, does that mean that I have more to say or less to say about this, um, about this topic? I don't know.
1: So I would just add one final thought, I suppose, in response to what some of the, some of the further comments, um, Again, I mean, I think the thing which makes the difference, so Mark Larive says, you know, this is just kind of a budget debate um, and somebody else said this is incredibly milk toast, And, you know, that might be true, um, but that is exactly what it's claiming to do, right? I mean, it's explicitly, you know, from what I gathered, from what Malcolm said in the interview, it's explicitly localist. Um, it's explicitly municipal government. And what makes it different from just um, kind of... Uh, Uh, kind of perpetuating neoliberalism, if it succeeds, or, you know, just another local budget dispute or whatever it might be, is the fact, like he says, or like Malcolm said, rather, is the building up a cadre of working class political representation at the local level. So, so, uh, I mean, if he fails in that, then, you know, by all means, I mean, you know, it's obviously, you know, he can be open to criticism for that. But all of these kind of uh, other criticisms that have, you know, thus thus far been said in the comments seem to me to miss the mark if they don't engage with that core thing. Now, I think think the the transfer yet just just to mean to say, you know, I do think the Transfereot is an incoherent concept, um, even far more problematic than the PMC, which is already kind of, you know, problematic for reasons we've talked about on the pod. But I think it has more coherence than the Transfereot. But that notwithstanding that, it seems to me that there is a, you know, if his political project is to be judged, it has to be judged on this point, which is how far it succeeds in its claim of building up um, the experience, the kind of political experience of working-class representation in Swedish local government. He's not aiming to yeah, lead yeah. the world revolution, right? I mean, that is very clearly. So he can't be held, I think, to that standard. Um, and the applying the kind of standard of um, marginal kind of uh, leftist groups to this party, it seems to me to be irrelevant, neither here nor there.
2: Also, people kind of criticize milk toast, but what's, you know, that's a material politics, milk oh, come toast, on. bread and milk.
0: Anyway, is, uh, you know... let me let me just, I'm going to have my, my say on this. Um, you already did. When you always
1: comments. do, man. It's I fine. It's I not like anyone's stopping you from having your say. You editorialize. You're like, yeah, it's have a your comment. Say. And I agree with this one. <laughs> well,
0: I, that was just a quick remark. It's not taking up time, you know. Okay. Anyway. Well, take up take up some time now. I, I, Phil's scri- description of what is the kind of strategic and party building aspect of the party I find interesting, and I'm willing to, you know, give it enough rope. And, keep, like, you know, if that succeeds, that's interesting, and it might be an interesting model to replicate elsewhere. As to the politics of it, or specifically the kind of policy elements to it, I think I'm, I find them either boring and milquetoast or maybe a bit suspect and motivated more by the party leaders animus towards their former colleagues than by um, a real independent political analysis. So I'm not entirely convinced by the politics. I think it ultimately resolves itself into a sort of petty bourgeois gripe against the state and the state budgets, you know, and people with useless jobs, unlike us job creators, you know, small business owners and so on, um, which has no, you know, I can't be interpreted in any way as kind of a a, a working class or socialist politics um so you know good luck to him on the you know on the former side the the party building side if the policies that that they adopt are kind of just instrumental not really serious just a really a means of building up this cadre interesting let's see how it goes Okay, so moving on to episode 239, which was Against Justice with Ross Wolf. This was um, quite popular, but it also prompted a lot of discussion, some critical comments. So let me just run through these. Um, KD's comment, which is very popular, got a lot of likes. That's how we can tell. Um, So thanks for- A lot of engagement. Yeah, exactly. Yay, engagement. Thanks, KD. Um, Yeah. Um, I'm only mocking the kind of Patreon platform engagement, the actual real engagement of people- Commenting and stuff—that's really good. I don't want to be sarcastic about that. Um, anyway, um, Katie w- was frustrated with Ross's lack of a positive vision. Uh, he says, uh, "You guys, or they say I don't know that you guys keep saying there's no working class movement. It's true, of course, but it's always left at just that. Other elements and forces in society are constantly taking advantage of that void and leading sections of the class in all sorts of directions. If the left, especially the portion that of it that I'd consider not fucking crazy," If that left doesn't think about how to engage society, especially in this moment, we'll keep talking about a working class movement um, that doesn't, about how a working class doesn't uh, exist, and we'll keep that conversation going forever. And I find that dismaying. Similarly, Alex McAuliffe found the reference to world revolution in the capital of global industry emanating from Berlin or London or Paris or Washington fantastically outdated. What of Beijing, an actually communist power, or the rest of the increasingly industrial, muscular but horribly unequal East? For a professed internationalist, Ross's flippant regionalism and myopia are baffling. The promise of Marxist thought surely lies in constantly returning to specific, grounded criticism of the world and industrial development as it is, not retreating to ever more esoteric positions in the universes of theory, theory with a capital T. Uh, Ran Heilbrand says, it seems to me that Ross prioritizes theory over engagement with current affairs, whereas your attitude, uh, that's us, bunga your attitude uses theory in order to analyze the present. While you do push him on several specific points, it seems that you're generally overawed by his erudition. I wonder if there's a way to appreciate the complexity of his arguments without, without abandoning the healthy suspicion towards a tendency of many on the educated left to collapse their politics onto their intellectual tastes and interests. Listening to Ross, I was reminded of something that Todd McGowan said when you had him on, that theory always comes after politics. It seems to me that for Ross and many other brilliant theorists, it's the other way around. And uh, finally, Grant Baird says, Ross's opposition to the Sanders and Corbyn projects and electoral politics in general may seem like a solid position. But in my view, in order for reality to catch up with theory and perhaps push institutions and mindsets leftwards, uh, even if incrementally, voting for either would be worthwhile, even if the long-term goal can never be achieved through electoral politics.
2: Okay, um, do we want to take this up? Um, yeah, yeah. Ahead. I mean, obviously, a you know um, a, a d- good discussion, or certainly the, the theoretical aspects, you know, very sophisticated and interesting. But I guess the you know you've got to have theory and practice. You can't have just one of the two you need you need them both it's a two tick system and you need both of those ticks um so i guess this is the you know i don't think it's incumbent on us though to respond to kd's comment to to give an to give a solution to give an easy answer like it's would be facile and you know you should think for yourself and and come up with your own engagements and your own kind of uh political projects but i mean <laughs> We, we we all have our, I guess, individual kind of analyses and these they must lead to some theoretical engagement. I, th- I mean, some practical engagement, not just theoretical engagement. So, I mean, I guess, yeah, that would be my kind of general response to all of the comments. The, Alex- Mc- Can McAuliffe, I just respond
0: to that last, the last point actually quickly. Yeah. Like, it, this um issue of kind of su- suggesting a sort of empty void waiting for the working class to fill it. I mean, in one sense, we're kind of doomed to that. We all are. Right. But in a more in a more specific way, I don't think that's what we're doing. Um, I think that would be a bit unfair. It's a point that actually that Adam too seemed to make to me in the in the debate we had in New York and which several people have taken up and discussed and, and sometimes endorsed Adam's point that sort of gesturing at the masses as a sort of empty void waiting to be filled is problematic or even potentially fascistic but i think all of what we've discussed here for example talking about the canadian truckers and what we've discussed about brexit and very and the gilets jaunes and everything else shows that i mean suggests that we are interested in engaging with concrete politics engaging with concrete uh, masses in in quotation marks um where they arise even when they especially when they aren't fully formed as we've just discussed so you know i don't i don't think it's entirely fair to say that we don't discuss You know, concrete movements, or suggest what might be done, because I think we have, you know, latched on to certain concrete movements and tried to unpick and look at the, you know, radical
2: kernel to them. I mean, we have the populist interventions series, (laughs) so one episode down, um, which we've obviously already discussed with with Malcolm, and that's you know, that's based on. A question of like, what do you do after the, you know, the organized working class was defeated in the 80s and 90s? Like, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to look the same as it did before. Um, and so there's, there's not a, there's not a fixed, easy kind of model that you can just go back to. You can't just, you can't just say, we just need the Leninist party. Boom, here it is done. Problem solved. Revolution. It's, you know, I think the-, the vanguard of what? <laughs> So yeah, I mean this it require I mean that's I think the, the the context we're you know trying to think through and trying to have guests on and and conversations between ourselves of course as well to try to get somewhere with. But I mean I I just wanted to pick up Alex um McAuliffe. You you're very good at pronouncing everybody's names. Like I'm very I'm very impressed. Um the oh, thank you, Georg. Georgi. Um yeah. Um so beijing and actually communist power i'm not sure i'd agree with that and muscular but horribly unequal east the muscular east i haven't um heard that that phrase before but it makes me think of like one arm being very muscular and that's the east arm and the west arm being 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 puny um but that that might might just be me then um yeah but i i guess the there's a there's a general and probably more serious point here which is how like to what extent is is marxism today just a, a a kind of a theoretical edifice which doesn't have any you know practical um connections with real politics i mean this is something which perry anderson already said basically characterized western marxism so it's been it's not a recent phenomenon but what does that mean for for marxist theory if it is detached from political action it's going to be it, it won't be valid it won't be correct in the same way that that marx engels lenin lukacs to a maybe the last one we could be confident that it would be anyway
1: so i mean i think the i would take alex mcauliffe's point about the um this kind of regionalism, I think, I mean, I think Ross was making, you know, kind of, he was talking as if it was still the 19th century, Berlin, London and Paris as the centres of the world, rather than the fact that the, you know, world today looks extraordinarily different and whatever internationalism would look like, it would obviously have to incorporate not only, not only the States, but also, um, you know, also China. Um, and so that I think is um you know just by virtue of kind of uh, the industrial organization of the world so i think that you know is a point well made and it does seem to me that um that uh, ross's attention to the building this kind of uh, beautiful theoretical edifice and it was a you know it was a very elegant and uh, well-crafted um recreation of the classical kind of Marxist point on justice. Um, and I mean, it's still, you know, it would still, it's still, it's still kind of formally correct. Like if you wish to get beyond capitalism, then you need a politics which goes beyond justice that seem, you know, otherwise a politics of justice will simply recreate capitalism so i mean that you know that is clearly can you
0: you hold can you hold that thought so i can read the last comment because it's very specifically about this and we can refer to it so dana hara makes the point that i know marxism is about interests and it's not moralism and quote-unquote social justice is an entirely bullshit concept but the notion that you can't critique a society on the basis of ideological conceptions that arise from that society strikes me as being incorrect the only basis from which you can contribute you can critique a society is actually with ideas that are produced from that society which we do not stand outside of including notions of justice so that you know that's an interesting counterpoint.
1: yeah though it conflates two different points right so i mean there's the fact that justice is an inevitable part by of um the way in which uh you know a politics of emancipation will um begin with and you can't dispense with justice in any kind of um any kind of account i think of um of um, revolt or challenge um, or anything like that. But the point is, if you want to get beyond capitalism, then you need to go beyond justice. So at least that is the classical Marxist point. But there is no, you know, there is no meaningful challenge to capitalism. And thus, the, you know, the that point about needing needing to go beyond justice doesn't take you very far in kind of practical or political terms. Um, and indeed, you know, it could simply be um, a theoretical ornamentation of the political moment in the sense that there is, you know, no kind of meaningful um, challenge to capitalism as such. So I think those, you know, there it's a tension which is in, you know, it's uh, both elements are there and it's a tension which is insoluble um, at the moment. The theoretical point is obviously valid, but it has, it isn't, um, I don't think it connects to anything political, you know, kind of any political movement. And on top of that, you can't, you know, the point I think, and maybe, maybe Ross went too far in the opposite direction, but you can't dispense with justice. And certainly not, um, you know, short of the, of a, a society of the kind of idea of communism as an as a order of material superabundance. Um, but short of that then you know justice is indispensable the question is do you want to get beyond capitalism if you do then you will need to go beyond justice justice yeah. is uh, necessary i think i necessary.
0: think that's right it's better seen as a corrective to kind of a left left liberal um you know egalitarian justice arguments rather than suggesting that you know all arguments about justice have to be dispensed with any indignation at injustice should be dispensed with as well and uh that
2: you know that well, so- this yeah, I mean, isn't isn't the point also that the like the notion of justice that a society produces will be determined to a certain extent by you know by the content, the political content of that society, and a capitalist society produces like it just shows how limited the ideas that that sort of society can can produce are, or the the ruling class's ideas are, um, because it's yeah, it's always a kind of i don't know a restorative or, or not always but like the idea is you're trying to correct something that's gone that's gone wrong like it's it's a, it's an it's, an, it's an, a very limited idea um, if, and if this is, this is the central kind of plank of the progressive politics in 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 kind of today's capitalist society then it just shows that there's you know this society finds it very difficult to produce from within it ideas which which go beyond it which transcend it so that's why I guess Marxism has to, I, I would say, you know, obviously it's a product of, of capitalism, capitalist society, material conditions, but also, you know, the, those ideas, it, ha- it has to be a total totalizing critique. So you look at all of the ideas that society produces as a, you know, taken together and it shows you the, you know, the limitations of the, the non-proletarian sciences that um, get distributed within that society.
0: Um, Just to respond very quickly to Dan's point, I I see where you're going with this in terms of um, defending a sort of imminent critique, right? Taking up society's ideas and not criticizing from outside. In fact, it's precisely the sort of, um, whatever, justice-oriented left liberals who try to often stake out a kind of position of what the right form of egalitarianism would be and then criticize contemporary society for not living up to that. Um, But I think the real imminent critique is precisely to say that, you know, capitalist society throws up freedom as a possibility and is unable to realize it, um, rather than to rely on sort of some legalistic conception or some model in which the right, correct distribution of goods can be found on in,
2: in this society. Yeah, but um, freedom freedom as a, as a concept is, is white supremacist. We, we all know this now. Um, um, no, but I mean, the, it can be,
0: it can be, you know, you can have a, a Heron Volk Uh, sort of democracy
2: in which the freedom is only accorded to a certain class of people. So, yeah. Well, Um, it can be, yeah, it can be facetious, but anyway, Anyway. I feel like I also (laughs) should apologize to Alex McAuliffe for not, for not actually recognizing the very valid point that he was making that. Yeah. I mean, this, this is the, it, I mean, it's one of the challenges of, you know, Marxist analysis, both to be um, able to look at the, the specific national context, and also the global system in which all these nat- in internationalisms play out. So, yeah, I mean, looking at the, um, the role of Beijing or the role of China more, more widely, I think is, you know, particularly, I mean, it's, it's crucial. And we, you know, we mentioned this a little bit in the analysis of Lind as well. What's the role of coming great power, uh, great kind of power politics going to be on national contexts.
0: So, yeah. Okay. Um, We don't want to make this drag on too long. So we're going to move swiftly on uh, last couple of ones. Um, Number two, three, six, green Nazi pedos with uh, Lily Lynch. Um, Matthias W. points out that even if the taboo of war has been removed, it would be interesting to ask why. After the German Greens and Social Democrats campaigned for military intervention in Yugoslavia in 1999, they suddenly took up pacifist positions against America again in the Gulf War in 2003. I think that's very relevant, of course, for now, if we consider that uh, the Greens who are currently in coalition are uh, leading Germany in a far more militarist direction. So this um, episode actually proved, and, and Lily's articles proved, re- kind of prescient, actually, in some ways. Um, Hans Gutbrot, uh points out that not all Greens were pro-war, and they did nothing about Bosnia and Srebrenica. But Jonas Kiriatis uh, says he remembers the whole episode very differently. German liberals were frothing at the mouth. They were fucking horny for war. Going from Greece to Germany at the time was deeply disturbing. And the current German Greens are definitely extremely pro-war. Um, unless anybody has any comment on that, we're going to move on. Um, number 235, political in with uh, Anton Jaeger, where we talked about uh, uh, hyperpolitics. So Ben makes a point about uh, BLM, which I think was discussed as an instance of hyperpolitics. So Ben says, BLM is undeniably one or multiple institutions of some kind or another, and it would be politically beneficial for working people to understand it as such so that it can be freely evaluated on that basis. Instead, liberals only allow treating BLM as an institution when they're praising it. If you criticize BLM, the liberals will insist you are criticizing or intending to criticize the concept of black lives, quote unquote, mattering. I think that's a sharp point. Um, Eli says, if you critique BLM as an institution, again, on similar grounds, if you critique BLM as an institution, liberals will insist on dissolving it into a diffuse cloud or network of small civil society groups that the liberals insist are only vaguely associated by virtue of their commitment to the concept of black lives, quote unquote, mattering. The organizational unity of these groups is something only conservatives are willing to admit, as is their tendency to practice a kind of centralism in which whoever gets out in front on any given action will be followed in lockstep out of quote-unquote solidarity. Which, if you think about it, speaks pretty directly against the claim that we're actually talking about any sort of decentralized, uncoordinated ideological fog rather than a tightly run organization. Kenneth Smith says, I'll be honest, the way George manages to bring it back to the lockdown, no matter what the conversation is about, gets a bit annoying. Maybe it's because I'm in Washington State where COVID response has been basically in line with the most liberal logic. And even here, a true lockdown never happened. Um, and finally, uh, a really good comment from Ron Heilbrunn, which um, I'll read not in, in its full extent, but but most of it, because um, it's worth uh, giving a shout out, even if we don't comment on it, I think it was uh, very spot on. The Dreyfus Affair is the opposite of hyperpolitics. Of course, remembering back, uh, Anton argues that we're living through a kind of permanent Dreyfus Affair now and in our hyperpolitical state. But Randis agrees. First, what distinguishes the Dreyfus Affair from modern controversies is precisely its permanence. The affair divided French society for decades. Today's publicized scandals, in contrast, are highly ephemeral. Dreyfus's contemporary counterparts, the Rittenhouse case is a perfect example here, merely function as momentary battlegrounds for pre-existing identitarian conflict. As Hannah Arendt wrote, the affair, the Dreyfus affair, could arouse such political passions and inspire such an endless succession of trials and retrials because the doctrine of equality before the law was was so firmly implanted in the conscience of the civilized world that a single miscarriage of justice could provoke public indignation from Moscow to New York. This type of commitment, uh, Rand continues, this type of commitment to pre-political principles is is completely absent from our hyper-political culture. Famously, the officer that exposed the conspiracy and that eventually led to Dreyfus's acquittal was himself an anti-Semite. Today, in contrast, one can hardly imagine a liberal defending someone like Rittenhouse in the name of due process, for instance. The personalism of the Dreyfus affair represents this strange 19th century humanistic concern for an individual wronged by the legal system. The personalism of hyperpolitics is different. It represents the superficiality of contemporary discourse, the tendency to translate politics into a moralistic narratives about heroes and villains. I think that's very well put. I just wanted to make.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just an extraordinarily kind of um, uh, well precise comment. And um, so, you know, well informed about the original um, paradigm of the Dreyfus Affair. And the comparison is just, you know, I mean, it just it basically, you know, kind of demolishes the comparison, I think. And it's extraordinarily accurate, particularly this point about the fact of the difference, the commitment to pre-political principles, in this case, the idea of um, due process and the idea of the doctrine of equality before the law, that that is very clearly um, absent in today's uh, public sphere. And it is impossible to imagine a liberal defending Rittenhouse in the name of due process. I mean yeah. So really, they I mean, didn't. it shows how well. That's the point. So I mean, it shows um, how you know far beneath we're even um, the Dreyfus affair. Things are much worse than even the Dreyfus affair.
0: Just a little shout out, um, because this question of the toxicity of contemporary politics, or you know, hyperpolitics, uh, is something that we're going to discuss in, a, in a, an upcoming episode soon on technopolitics, um, which interestingly ties together the idea of technopolitics and why contemporary politics seems so toxic um, so that's just a shout out and one thing actually I wanted to, to give a shout out to as well um, earlier when we were discussing the Canadian truckers uh, in an upcoming episode with an actual Canadian Ashley Frawley uh, who's going to be on the podcast soon we're going to be discussing the Canadian truckers a little bit too so we're going to be kind of doing a, a retrospective on, on is, that a little bit so uh, she that's a, two episodes to look out for
2: which should be coming out in the coming month. but is she a trucker? She can talk. She's about not a trucker. She's not a. She's not a trucker. I did. I did want to. I did want to acknowledge Kenneth Smith's uh, comment, and also basically like checkmate because I can't. I can't respond to it without bringing it back to lockdown. So, he's. You know. He's kind of. You know. He's kind of won. He's kind of won that one. I mean, I can't. You know. I can't really defend myself because then I would be talking about lockdown, and and that would be further evidence uh, for his his criticism. So.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, let's move on. It this is the very final one. Um, thank you for sticking with us if you're still listening. Um, I hope you're enjoying uh our responses and discussions of, of these comments. Uh I, I we find we find it very useful. We like this engagement, um, and we hope it kind of helps refine our arguments and yours as well. So um uh, let us know. Let us know. And we'll discuss at the next Alpha Bonus Bonus, which we uh, promise will be sooner than uh, the gap we've left between the last one and this one. Right. Final comment. Uh, episode 234. It was a three articles on uh, U.S. Civil War. Paul Brewer uh, comments that we ought to be measured about the fears expressed by Gideon Rachman. Gideon Rachman wrote a piece which we discussed talking about the possibilities of the Civil War in the United States. So Paul Brewer says, in 1983, when Gordon Cal, a member of the far-right posse comitatus, was killed, this armed underground was very much a lunatic fringe. We've gradually seen it move over the next 40 years towards the mainstream, to the point that it now appears to be electing congressional representatives. What might be going on in the state houses is anyone's guess. Is that a precursor for a civil war? Probably more in the style of Ireland in 1922-23 than 1865 Excuse me, 1861 to five. So it's more like the uh, Irish war rather than the uh, American Civil War. Uh, probably the movement needs more support from the armed forces and political elites than it has at the moment, but it's not too hard to construct a scenario where that might arise. Um, comments Civil- on, on
2: the US Civil War. Well, civil war seems to be less of um, a concern now that we have international war. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, it's it's yeah. I mean, that's a good a good way to avoid civil war is to have uh, war over there.
1: Yeah, um, though, I mean, I don't think civil war was the point. Is it wasn't an imminent prospect in the U.S. That has simply been kind of diverted now by the geopolitical crisis over Ukraine. Um, and I think, I mean. I take, you know, I don't, I just, I mean, I think, you know, Ireland, the Irish civil war is, um, you know, as remote a prospect as the U.S. civil war itself. Um, I suppose what strikes me is, uh, you know, recalling, it seems to me like a lot of what's happening at the moment in the U.S. seems to me to recall the early 1990s. So it was um, the disorientation, I suppose, in the aftermath of the-, the early
0: 1990s um, in Russia, you mean?
1: No, in the U.S. <laughs> The disorientation in the aftermath of the end of the Cold War, there was tremendous kind of right wing conspiracy theories that were remarkably influential about um, the, you know, the UN running black helicopters, um, the fact that there was a new world, the new world order idea, which was itself, you know, the American president who kind of articulated it as a vision for American leadership and domination of the world was taken up by right-wing americans as a vision of how the american state was going to run rampant over uh, the constitution and civil liberty so it was a bizarre inversion in a way of the real kind of dynamics of power at the time and it was also the time of the you know the oklahoma bombing would follow in the early 90s i think it was 94 95 was it um and so Mm -hmm. you know it's kind of it was also a time when political correctness was also kind of um boomed for the first time um and so i think you know it's a kind of it's a it's a remarkably um you know kind of it's a remarkably similar moment except at the end rather than at the beginning of the end of history it comes at the end of the end of history and so there's kind of um there are echoes there the difference is though obviously um all of that was basically you know it kind of it was drowned in the boom times of the Clinton era with the dot-com boom and the expansion of the US economy and lots of crappy service sector jobs that came available um, as, and you know, lots China of easy credit, mm. lots of easy credit. And we're not heading into that era. And so because we're going into an era where there is, you know, there's going to be much more um, economic uncertainty, inflation, the geopolitical kind of um, even if this, you know, even if the war in Ukraine ends reasonably soon, the legacy of that is going to um, impact um, the global economy for a long time. And so all of that makes it more difficult to see. A kind of um, solution to all of these bizarre kind of tensions, conspiracy theories, and the general feeling of um, suspicion and paranoia in public life. Yeah. So
2: one one thing just to add on this, like we've recently had the you know the the McDonald's peace theory, no two countries with McDonald's ever go to war. Like that's that's no longer relevant. I mean, I think. You could have an, an american version of that no two states with the wendys have ever gone to war so i wonder if that will still be still be valid in in 10 years it was then it,
1: it was already over in 1999 because um when nato bombed yugoslavia serbia as it was then it was uh, they had mcdonald's then already so it was it ended a long time ago in any case still... mcdonald's has left you know as part of the sanctions mcdonald's has fled russia and so is in attempt in an attempt, I guess, by McDonald's execs to confirm the theory and to protect Thomas Friedman's reputation.
2: But the Wendy's peace theory is still is still true. No two states with the Wendy's with Wendy's have ever gone to war. Oh, well, you, should okay.
1: write, I'm, I'm, you should write a book about it, George. I'm I'm no just two getting states hungry. Within,
2: those two states with an in-and-out burger have ever gone to war <laughs> uh yeah anyway um but we'll leave that here i'm getting
0: hungry uh i need to go have dinner
1: we're talking about wendy's is that well, making you hungry i thought I mcdonald's I thought I, your I, euro, I, euro trash like your euro trash like hipster standards were higher
0: well no but we, if it's euro trash then it's definitely eating mcdonald's what do you i don't that doesn't make <laughs> sense. and we we had in an out burger when we went to
2: california Alex we did, and, I, and it, and was, it was, was it was really good yeah
0: yeah Anyway, I'm going to eat meat of some sort and uh, we'll leave it here. Thank you very much again for all your comments. Our deepest apologies if we've missed yours. Uh, if you want to shout at us for having missed it, please uh, please feel free to do so. And we'll uh, we'll try to rectify that in the future. Again, we hope you enjoy these. Um, I think many of you do. And uh, again, if we've missed anything, uh, shout at us. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, we've already trailed uh, two episodes there uh, just a second ago. Um, so that's to, all to look forward to. Catch you later. Bye-bye.